Greetings, friends. My name is Jessa McLean, and I'm here to provide you with some blueprints of disruption. This weekly podcast is dedicated to amplifying the work of activists, examining power structures, and sharing the success stories from the grassroots. Through these discussions, we hope to provide folks with the tools and the inspiration they need to start to dismantle capitalism, decolonize our spaces, and bring about the political revolution that we know we need. Welcome to Blueprints, Kim. Can you introduce yourself to everybody? Yeah, my name is Kim Crawley. I, as far as like my profession is concerned, I'm a cybersecurity researcher and writer, which uh, isn't official credentials for understanding the topic at hand, which is COVID, but there are parallels between cyber threats and this biological threat that we're now facing. Tell me more about that, because I saw you tweet one time, and I don't know if you really got into it, that if somebody wasn't taking COVID seriously, that they couldn't really be a good cybersecurity expert. What do you mean? Understanding cybersecurity is more about understanding human nature and understanding the nature of dangers and risks and threats that is about the technicalities of computing. Understanding the technicalities of computing is very important, but it's not the only important thing. I, I would say having a sense for threats and how they impact people in general, not just when they use computers, is more important when it comes to being good at cybersecurity than being a master computer programmer, for instance. One I guess we've seen with all of the science that has developed around COVID, it's really people's behavior that all of it hinges on. We could have the best masks, the best vaccines and distribution systems, but if people aren't taking these threats seriously or we can't predict on how they will behave, we obviously were not able to contain it. Yeah. And, you know, I I think anyone who ever had any faith in capitalism and trust in our government beforehand, if they are thinking critically at all right now, they should have no trust for any of those institutions left because we have basically been left to die. Yeah, basically, you're right. What are we? We're at over 50,000 deaths in Canada. I, I would look at all of the official figures and I would multiply that by at least five or ten times. Because there, there, there are multiple issues involved in all of the official figures being undercounts. One is the criteria for declaring a death, a COVID-related death, is very, very narrow. And probably more than half of COVID deaths aren't even in hospital. And there's usually a, a, a main issue that, you know, kills someone. And that isn't considered to be COVID, even if it is. So, for instance, heart attacks. If, if someone had a COVID infection six months ago and they thought that they were fine afterward and then they just collapsed and had a heart attack and died six months later, that probably won't be counted as a COVID death officially. No, and kind of worse, you're going to see on social media that folks are going to attribute that to a vaccine, right? All of these unexplained sudden deaths is almost become a meme for anti-vaxxers. That is a big problem. And then, of course, we have long COVID. So, I mean, just you correcting me there on the figures that I was able to pull up kind of speaks to the overall lack of information, misinformation, 
conflicting information, especially now since hardly anyone is reporting on the numbers, the cases, what vaccine you should be taking, when it'll be available, what masks work best, and if you're even allowed to wear them to work. So what has happened here, Kim, that we have all these other major events happen other scientific advances happen, and we are given the information a lot more clearly, a lot more succinctly, until we understand it. But COVID has been a real mismatch of sources and reliability. Has that been one of the major downfalls in adjusting human behavior? To to continue resist, like I now am probably one of less than 1% of the general population who has never had COVID. And although a lot of COVID infections are asymptomatic and a lot of transmission is asymptomatic, I can be pretty confident that I've never had COVID because A, and I know this is a privilege that most workers don't have, I work from home, I don't have children, I don't live with any other human beings. I, when I'm away from home, even when I'm in the hallway of my apartment building, and I'm taking the garbage down the chute, I have a respirator on. Not a baggy surgical mask, but a good, solid, elastomeric respirator. In other words, you've had to go through incredible and isolating means yeah. to avoid exposure. I don't, the last time I dined inside a restaurant was late, you know, probably December 2019. Rat tests aren't the most accurate, especially if you're not symptomatic. But if you take two or three rat tests every week and you're taking them properly and they're always negative all the time, you can be pretty certain that you haven't had COVID. But yeah, my situation is a rare combination of privilege and knowledge because a lot of Ontarians do not have the privileges that I have, but at the same time, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I live in a kind of upscale apartment building. Like it's on, it's one of those new condos on the Toronto Lakeshore. And although, you know, most people, there are factors in their lives they can't control. They have children bringing COVID home from school. They have, they have to, you know, go to Tim Hortons to do their Tim Hortons job. They can't afford proper protective gear, or if they do, their employers uh, penalize them for it or threaten their jobs or their livelihood. I, people have to take public transit. There are a lot of factors in people's lives that they can't control. But my neighbors are better off than the average Torontonian, right? And I think most of my neighbors could afford to protect their kids, like send them to private schools where all the air is filtered and they can afford, if they tell their boss, I'm going to work from home from now on, their jobs aren't at stake. Money buys you a lot of COVID protection. And I'm afraid that, you know, probably 95% of my neighbors have still had COVID probably multiple times, because even though they have all those privileges that, you know, being upper middle class or whatever grants them, they don't exercise those privileges because they want to go to the bar and they want to party and, and you know, they feel like they're invincible. And having privilege is not enough. Having knowledge is not enough because there are people with knowledge who don't have the privilege. You need to have that combination of privilege and knowledge. And not, not just knowledge, I think it's character. 
I don't think someone who is making 15 bucks an hour at McDonald's, for instance, who got infected with COVID at work lacks character. I think people who are like, I cannot go three days without going to this swanky restaurant on King West. Those people lack character. And being neurodivergent really helps with this. Resisting peer pressure. <laughs> I go out there, I'm the only person wearing any sort of face covering, let alone a proper respirator. I'm sure I get stared at by people. Oh, I feel it. Uh, I live in a small town and I am, my family are the only masked people here most of the time. My little one is the only masked one I see going to school. That hasn't stopped us. You know, I have not dined out either. We have never, we've always maintained masking and, and relative social distancing and, and we've missed a lot of family, but we are in a position that, yeah, we haven't had to go to work. I want to go into your, your comment of character, not to criticize you, but when you describe kind of swanky neighbors and high-end jobs choosing to go dine out on King, King West, we're like, yeah, of course. But we're also seeing people who should know better. They have the resources and the knowledge, and they apparently should have the character our allies, not doing a damn thing about COVID. And I saw a couple tweets this morning talking about yesterday and the amazing show of support that came out to support queer kids, but just not queer disabled kids. Uh, Lulu, a, a friend of the show, made that point, as she often does have to remind us that we we don't really take disability rights and whatnot. Not to say COVID is just a disability issue, that it only will impact disabled people because it will actually disable you um, through its infection and, and multiple infections. However, there is a huge portion of our population that are already immunocompromised that that an infection just like isn't an option. And there's a lot of letdown there. Do you feel that too? Because oh yeah, I mean, you're trying to be, I, I see you, I see you. You're like screaming into the void sometimes. Not that people aren't listening, but that because a lot of people are, but so many are almost agitated by it, right? Even my own family, for example, I'm I'm the one that's reminding, do you have a mask with you? You're going to mask when you go in there, right? Because I feel like if I'm not watching, they're actually not masking because it's like, it's me. I'm the neurotic one. I use scare quotes because I feel like I'm the only one kind of couched in reality. And my son, <laughs> if you ask him, he'll say he's protecting his community. He, he gets it. But I'm surrounded we are surrounded by people that know what community defenses are, except when it comes to wearing a mask. Help me understand that. Yeah, that's been really disappointing about the left, because the minority of people on the left who do recognize COVID as the threat as it is, recognizes that going around maskless, you are basically furthering capitalism's destructiveness, right? The reason why... The powers that be, both in business and in government, have discouraged masking, for instance, is because it's a visible sign of the pandemic. And it prevents people, it prevents us from, you know, enthusiastically going into wage slave for our capitalist overlords. And it, you know, and it prevents us from 
you know, going out and shopping and going to restaurants and spending money. It is a bit of a downer, right? right? Like if you look around yeah. and you see everyone mask. I don't like the white surgical colored ones because they remind me of hospitals. So I get I can't actually wear them. I have to wear the black ones because I'm kind of pretending to myself it's a mask that I'm like hiding that I'm not. And just mentally, it helps me continue to be masked because it is depressing. It is hard on the soul to continue to live through this pandemic, not knowing when it's going to stop. I might be unusual relative to the people that you know, but I would feel a lot more comfortable in public if I saw people wear respirators. I have unfollowed people on social media because they've posted photos of themselves like in public places without wearing anything on their face. Because to you, that speaks to a lack of character, right? No, not just that, but I think of the implications of what they're doing. Of, of the actual post. Yeah. I got like, you. I, I, I can't help but look at all these things and think of the long-term effects of all of it. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest misconceptions that people have, other than erroneously thinking that the pandemic is over is they definitely, people who are immunocompromised and people who have other serious health conditions are usually more likely to die imminently if they get infected than people who were in generally good health before. But more often than not, people get infected and they feel really horrible for a week or two weeks. And then afterward they feel normal and they go on with their lives and whatnot and they think okay that's what COVID is so COVID is like a flu even though the flu does kill people but COVID is just like the flu but I'm over it now and everything's better and it's no big deal but they don't realize that the acute infection stage is only a small part of it if if that acute infection phase doesn't kill you you still have long-term damage done to your body. There is plenty of scientific evidence now that it damages the T cells that are the basis of your immune system. So you get more prone to all infections in general. So a lot of people are sick now constantly because they have COVID, but a lot of people are also sick now constantly because they're getting sick from things that wouldn't have made them as sick before. The big lie is you know, immunity debt, and and uh, we were in lockdown for 20 years. I was going to say, they, people's immune systems. they blame that on the fact that we wore masks for so long, that we didn't expose ourselves to viruses. And so now that we are unmasked, well, some people, they're blaming it on the use of masks. But the truth is, no exposure to any virus is good for anyone. So it's not immunity debt. It's people's immune systems are being weakened by all of these infections constantly. Um, And then they don't realize, like, this will scare people, and it should. There are credible scientific reports coming out now that COVID does the kind of damage to your body long term that HIV, like untreated HIV does. You know, some of the bolder people in the COVID cautious community who I agree with are calling it, you know, airborne AIDS. Like people don't realize you could be fine for a couple of years or more, think that you're fine. And all of a sudden, all that hidden damage starts to surface and you, you're more prone to heart attacks and strokes. And there's been a, there have been links found to cancer and COVID and and, you know, brain damage, the brain damage thing scares me the most. You did talk about that because you rely so much on your brain to do your work. Yeah. 
there's what I'm about to talk about. There is a ton of nuance. I think if people can wear a proper respirator to go and get their COVID vaccines, then if they wear a proper respirator to do so, they should go and do so. You know, it, it does at least reduce your chances of imminent death. And contrary to what the anti-vaxxers are saying, all these horrible health effects people are having are not from the vaccines, they're from COVID, for Christ's sake. But the problem with the COVID vaccines is they're always for a strain of COVID that is a year old or more. And because people are going out and about maskless and they're spreading the virus around willy-nilly, every person infects, it gives the virus more and more opportunities to mutate. So because of how quickly all these strains are coming out all the time, vaccination should never, ever, ever, ever be your only line of defense. Never. It, it should always be a part of a stack of various mitigation measures that you're taking. So one of the big lies that the powers that be sold us is if you get your vaccine, you don't need to wear your mask anymore. Vax and relax. Yeah, exactly. And we're going to shift a little bit from individual responsibility and, and mitigation to our governments or a collective, more of a collective response. And there was one tweet Again, most of my interactions with you are on Twitter, so this is where a lot of our conversations are starting. It was, you know, pretty controversial in that it, it said, essentially, we might have been better served under Trump during a COVID response versus Biden. And everyone in the show is going to be like, gasp, you know, like that just sounds awful. But it was in the way the media responded to Trump and all his ridiculous claims about COVID not existing or being treated with malarkey. And they questioned him. They pressed him. They were critical of him. And then when Biden took over, he had the real vax and relax approach. It was completely swallowed by the media and regurgitated back to us without question. Still is, right? We can't criticize Biden still, uh, just like we can't criticize our own leftists, apparently. But this... This is a bit of a controversial take, but it's hard to argue with because people are generally just going to take what's coming from high up. I mean, we are a little more critical of, of folks now and we know how the anti-vaxxers feel about Trudeau. It doesn't matter what his health officials say. But for most people, they carry a lot of weight. I, I cannot reiterate that, you know, Donald Trump is evil. There's no doubt about that. He is completely evil. The liberals probably don't want to hear that Joe Biden is also evil. Joe Biden and all Trump's politics are actually pretty similar. And Joe Biden as well has a long history of being super racist and of enacting really racist policies. You know, you and I, because we're not liberals, we, we look at Joe Biden and we know we're looking at someone who's not just right, but from my perspective, someone who's far right. So to me... There's not much difference between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, except for aesthetics, but also... And how the media respond to them. Yeah, but the problem is liberals are more likely to listen to Joe Biden, whereas they know if Donald Trump is saying something that he's lying and he's completely evil. The liberals were in, you know, they were masking when Donald Trump was president of the United States. The liberals were resisting and all that stuff. And now they're, they're going to brunch. So that, that is a huge problem. As far as I'm concerned, Biden and Trump are equally evil. But it's, it's how people react to them. 
that impacts the way things are. You went back to that point of the visual of the mask, right? And it it was a a sign of resistance, or at least that something's not well, right? Like things can't be hunky-dory if everyone's walking around in a respirator. And we lost that resistance because they had to put up that strong front that we are okay, that we're doing a better job than the last guy. And that need for political clout has cost fucking lives. I wonder... Kim, if you could make decisions, knowing what you know now, especially like three years into this, and you were to call on the government at the onset, like what could we, could we have done anything, right, to mitigate COVID from the beginning? Or is it like capitalism on an, on the global scale and socialism on the global scale? Well, sure, you could have got Canadian governments to do the right thing, but then we would have needed every other country to do it. What's your thoughts on on how this should have been handled from the very beginning? Yeah, globally, we could have completely eliminated COVID by just having, and I know people hate this word, a proper lockdown for a month. And I know a lot of people depend on their jobs outside of the household to pay their bills. Give those people money to stay home for that period. And the only people not staying home being like people like firefighters, for instance. And if we had done that, we could have completely eliminated COVID. Um, Unfortunately, doing things to fight COVID effectively is counter to capitalistic interests, right? And we had a little bit of stay at home and a little bit of ineffective mask wearing and stuff like that in 2020 and a little bit like we had our two thousand dollars a month is a lot more money than people on on ow get and people on odsp get for for a lot of people it's a significant pay cut but it's something and it was able to keep some people at home a little bit i think that payment should have been like at least four grand a month for most people right and i don't think it's fair that OW is less than $1,000 a month or ODSP. Like the way things are with like inflation, how much everything costs and all that, everyone should be taking home at least, you know, five grand a month. Well, whether they work or not. If you had everybody on lockdown for a month and only a month or two months and not six months of disruption and now three years of the unknown, those checks could be bigger because it would have been for a much shorter period of time, right? An actual lockdown in earnest. Absolutely. And we know the funds are there for emergency services like that. You know, red baiting as it goes. And China's not even a communist country. Let's, it, it's a bit of a hybrid. We, we're not here to get into that. But we do love to demonize China in Canada. At least our governments do. They did use real lockdowns where food was delivered, martial law essentially declared, nobody on the streets. They Their economy did not collapse. They were able to do it a few times when needed to bring the numbers down. It's strange that we still continue to even criticize those lockdowns yeah. as like undemocratic, authoritarian, yet they were doing everything possible to save the people. And, and if, yeah. you know, if you have a safe home, and I know a lot of people don't, a lot of people, unfortunately, live on the streets or they, they have domestic violence at home. But for people who are safe at home, 
a lockdown is great. Like really, like it's I, maybe because I'm an introvert, I don't get it. But you know, if you have a comfortable, safe home to stay in, it's not a big deal to spend a month at home. We've got the internet, we've got TV, we've got books and movies and a lot of us have video games and we can talk to people online and stuff like that. To some people, not being able to go out drinking every couple of days is is torture for them, I guess. That pisses me off so much because I've, I've been like on a three-year lockdown. Yeah. I go, go, I do our shopping, but there's no extra. If it's extra, it's outdoors. So many family things missed for years now because some people are governments mostly because we really did need leadership at the beginning to show that all hands on deck to solve something like this. And, And it really wasn't. You're in Ontario with me. That lockdown was just an absolute joke. The exceptions that were made and, you know, started to include nail salons at one point. Construction sites, like my husband was going to a construction site where you are working right beside people. There was, it was ridiculous. The rule on site, Kim, you're going to love this. If you were smoking, you didn't have to wear a mask. So folks would just have an unlit smoke hanging out of their mouth all of the time so that their foreman couldn't make them put on a mask. And, you know, he had to go to work in these conditions. That's pathetic. We never, ever had a lockdown. We never had any government really taking this seriously. And so now after three years, I feel like, is it three years? I don't know. It's all a blur. Three and a half at least. We're starting to see these health officials come out with masks again. What's going on? They, I haven't seen them in a mask in a while. Yeah. I think some parts of, you know, our capitalist overlords, I think our capitalist overlords are at odds with each other right now because there are some who are recognizing this is hearsay that I hear through social media, but most workplaces right now have most people off sick. So that, that's all they care about is people showing up to work and, and wage slaving for their capitalist overlords. You know, a McDonald's franchise, for instance, say it employs 40 people. If 39 of those people are out sick, then, you know, that McDonald's franchise has to hire new people immediately, like within a couple of hours, or shut down for a few days. And even the most right-wing pro-capitalist person would be forced to do that. So I think another problem is, and I think this is really important for people to understand, the masks that we were sold on originally in 2020 were not effective masks. You mean the blue ones with the ear loops or the hand-knitted ones? Though, yeah, surgical masks, in, in the COVID-cautious community, we call those baggy blues. Um, the thing is, the reason why, you know, ineffective cloth masks and surgical masks were pushed on us in 2020 is because the powers that be did not want to acknowledge that COVID is airborne. They wanted the theory that it was droplets, transmitted by droplets. We had to wash our hands. That was the main messaging. So the wash, wash your hands, stay six feet apart. Still, some shopping malls have things on the floor where it's like everyone stands six feet apart from each other. And it, it's like smoke. If you've ever seen someone light a joint or a cigarette and seen how the smoke travels, that's how COVID travels. Surely my neighbors smell my smoke. <laughs> exactly. And it also means that... Okay, let's say, for instance, like my home is very, very COVID safe. I've got 
I've got HEPA filters everywhere. I've got good ventilation. But let's say I didn't have any of that. And someone who was actively infectious with COVID and they weren't wearing a respirator and they walked into my apartment and they hung out for a couple of minutes, breathing in and out and then breathing COVID into the air in my apartment as they were doing so. And then they left. And then two hours later, someone who is not infected with COVID walks into my apartment and they can get infected by that person who was in my apartment two hours ago. They're not there anymore, but some traces of the COVID they left in the air are still in the air. And if you don't have you know, CR boxes or HEPA devices and you don't have good ventilation, then that's gonna stay in the air for a lot longer. And then there's, there's so much nuance because there are people who I don't agree with who are considered to be part of the COVID cautious community who, you know, just as it's wrong to think of vaccines as the only measure of mitigation, it's wrong to think of air quality as the only measure of mitigation. It's a very important one. And it's, you know, all those groups that are fighting to clean the air in children's schools and whatnot, they are doing very good work and they should keep on doing that. And it's horrible now to think of the air quality that we had to deal with even before the pandemic when we were in public school. Like, it's brutal. I mean, and COVID is not the only reason why the air should be clean and ventilated and whatnot. But the benefits, as far as COVID is concerned, the benefits of filtering the air and good ventilation means that COVID doesn't stay in the air for as long of time, right? So instead of being in the room for hours, it's in the room for 20 minutes. But it's still in the room for 20 minutes while that ventilation, hyperfiltration, all that is going on. So there are people in our community who are like, oh, the CO2 level in this room is 450 and there's a CR box over there. I can take off my, we can all take off our masks. But just like it's, it travels like smoke. So having all that stuff in the room means if you lit a cigarette, your cigarette smoke is not going to stay in the room for as long. Only a teenage kid trying to smoke before their parents come home believe that, right? right. Leaving it away, I'll be good. No, it lingers. But if someone smokes a cigarette in front of you, that cigarette smoke is still going to be there for uh, several minutes at least before it's all filtered or ventilated out. So you need a combination of respirators and air filtration. And then another misconception is that you can't get infected outdoors. But if you're walking outside with someone smoking a joint, you can smell their joint. So people have gotten infected. It's, it's safer. It's safer to be maskless outdoors than it is to be maskless indoors. But you can get infected, especially if someone right across from you is infected. So there's all this nuance that people don't understand. And you know the reason why surgical masks and cloth masks aren't very good is they are good for droplets. So if the, the, if the problem is your spit is infected, that will protect you because, you know, it'll protect your sneeze, your cough, especially. Right. Like contain. Yeah. But then we're also realizing that the common cold and other diseases are also airborne. So you won't get hit by someone's mucus Blah. if they're wearing yeah. a surgical mask, right? But there could still be virus spreading in the air, like not for six feet, for many, many feet, like the whole room. Unfortunately, 
it can be a bit expensive. I I keep boxes of 3M Aura. They're N95 grade 3M Aura respirators. And I buy like the big boxes of 40 of them. And they still work out to be about $2.50 each. And that's not a big deal if you're middle class. You can throw out a $2.50 respirator every day if you're middle class, no problem. But yeah, if you're on OW or homeless, that is you you can you cannot handle that expense at all. You don't have there's no money for it, even if you're buying them individually. No, I even messaged you the other day about more affordable masks because my little guy, he loses them. Right. He always has extra in in the back of his backpack, but sometimes it's more than one a day, plus what we need to go around and, and do anything that we need to do. And that's a huge barrier for folks. They never really did hand out masks. Our vaccines are free because our health care is so-called free, but masks were never distributed on mass, which really puzzles me. The rapid tests were and, and all of that, but nothing to actually stop the spread. And yeah. even the efforts, I remember the hashtag COVID is airborne, like there were real efforts made mostly by grassroots people to drive home that very simple point that we, we seem to understand now. But when we were in the droplet, it's wash your hand phase, not just the schools, that was, you know, there's been a lot of, of work to to clean the air in schools because they almost have no choice there. But even scientific facts, bringing them to the forefront was like required activism, which to me is just so absurd because of the amount of money that we spend on our public health system and research and, and all of that. They had to have known it was airborne. They did. From the onset. I was so angry. It's no wonder nobody trusts them. I was so angry because like early in tw March 2020, when it started to become an official problem in Canada. The message, the first message that we were given by the powers that be is, if you don't work in healthcare, you don't need a mask. Save the mask for the healthcare workers. I was ticked off by that already, but and then I think a few weeks later, when when the message changed, I made my first fabric mask, and I wish I had known that the fabric masks and all the hand sanitizer and all that were all for naught. But they knew as early as February 2020, if not earlier, that COVID is airborne. And I recommend that listeners to this show, if, you don't, if you're not on X Twitter, no one calls it X. We call it Twitter. Um, probably that's the best. Or go to Mastodon or Blue Sky now and search for World Health Organization. So WHO and Tedros, T-E-D-R-O-S, in February 2020. And the World Health Organization did a press conference in February 2020. And Dr. Tedros said briefly, it, it's airborne. And then Dr. Mike Ryan, who was right next to him, said, whispered something into his ear. And you can see this on video if you search for it online. And then all of a sudden he said, no, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. That is the military word. It is droplets, droplets. And I, I would be happy to share that with you and you can put it in the show notes. I will gladly link that. I've already jotted it down. Now, the reason why they didn't want us to think it was airborne was that if we acknowledge that COVID is airborne, that is no longer an individual, you and me, responsibility completely. It is societies. It's societies. 
and it's business and it's our institutions. It's their responsibility to clean the air. And they did not want to do that. So they want me. It's your individual responsibility. So there's so much of that shit going around from climate change to poverty and putting it all on the individual. And, you know, there's there is no way that this pandemic can end by making it an individual problem. That doesn't mean that I forgive people for being maskless in public. <laughs> right, right, right. I hate our powers that be. But I also sincerely detest my neighbors when I see them going around maskless. There are people who I like, love, and respect, but my feelings about the general population and, and humanity at large, my opinion of people in general, has plummeted since this pandemic has started. I don't think you're alone there. Even within families, it's been a real divider. Yeah. It, it crosses all political lines. Because early in the in the pandemic, I lost comrades almost immediately. Anti-vaxxers that were almost, not almost, they were very aggressive about it. In your face, angry. And I didn't even understand that point of view at all at that point. But the divide was there. And yeah, when, when you have families where some of them are taking it seriously and then some are flaunting it, it creates the animosity that you just talked about because you're doing everything you can and it will mean fuck all for the community unless everybody does it, right? I can keep my family safe-ish, but not as good as I could if my neighbors could also do the same, right? And so you get like resentful, but then you're physically separated too, because you're not going to take precautions, because leftists are going to hold events that don't have mandatory masks or any kind of social distancing or any precautions whatsoever. You're not welcome there anymore. All of these spaces where, yeah, people are screaming at each other and standing up, but they're side by side by side by side with no mask on. And so you've been ostracized in a way. Or you have to create your own community of COVID-conscious people, which is dwindling because it, it becomes harder. Like there were people in my family that were like, yes, we're on it. And they're tired. I have to remind them more and more and more. And I kind of get flack. It's like, oh, yeah, give me the mask. Here I go. You know, it's getting harder and harder to keep people vigilant. It's disparaging. It's Maybe some of these people would be a little more... Maybe not all of them, but maybe some of them would be a little more vigilant if they understood that it's not flu symptoms for a couple of weeks and then you're fine. It's There is scientific evidence that COVID fuses brain cells together. Uh, there is a new story, I can find it so you can add to the show notes too, of a 19-year-old young woman who has dementia. Like It, it might be the youngest in medically recorded case of Alzheimer's disease. I don't know if it's Alzheimer's disease or general dementia, but this young lady was, her, her, her brain was perfectly fine until she had a COVID infection. It, it's probably absolutely terrifying to be immunocompromised or you're a cancer patient or any number of reasons like that. But it seems the difference between immunocompromised people and people who aren't yet immunocompromised is just your risk of imminent death. And even that's not confined to immunocompromised people. Right. So, because folks sometimes don't even know how sick they are. They don't know that they have comorbidities exactly. to begin with. 
And those comorbidities are a lot. So uh, that was another really disheartening narrative that really took hold at the onset was sure people were dying, but they were already sick. That was a big fuck you to the disabled community as well. You're literally saying it's okay. It's only disabled people dying. You'll probably survive. Like this is before we understood long COVID at which some people still don't. And just to note, like you've mentioned a lot of it, but long COVID is this rainbow of still to be understood issues, health issues that are seemingly lifelong for some folks, some you know, it's a few years. We don't know because obviously we were only three years into this, but decreased lung capacity, your heart weakens, some things you don't even notice until you go in to figure out something else and they find out your body's actually been ravaged by something that is barely holding together this whole time and something simple has completely wrecked you. So like we don't even fully understand, but surely, surely there is no person that has been untouched by COVID. I've had, like, I've known two people to pass away from COVID, decidedly, like, not after the fact, not from long COVID, from an acute infection. I can't be an anomaly with the numbers that we see. So why doesn't that hit people, you think? Like, why doesn't that personal loss or that threat of long-term disability or chronic health issue why doesn't that scare people enough? Yeah, I, I'm I'm banging my head about it too. Like, even if I didn't need my brain in order to like labor for my capitalist overlords, if brain damage is your main symptom after COVID, from what I hear, it is really scary. Because like to, f- I have one friend in the COVID cautious community who unfortunately has been infected at least once. And she says she doesn't recognize faces anymore. Mm -hmm. Some people congenitally are face blind and they've they've grown up with that all their lives. And they've learned how to, you know, recognizing people by their faces was never a thing for them. So it's not such a big deal because they've adapted all their lives to it. But for someone to have recognized faces all their lives and then suddenly lose that ability. One of the most common things I hear from people online is they used to be able to watch a movie and follow what's going on. And now they can't. So they can't even like sit back at home and enjoy a movie because they can't follow what's going on. But that is scary. Like, it's a shame that we need to be mentally and physically capable in order to wage slave for our capitalist overlords. But even in our downtime, that stuff really messes you up. Well, even most people don't need their smell or taste to do their work. You know, chefs aside, that scares me. Yeah. All, all these other scary things, I guess you kind of deal with a lot. Like I could I could have a heart attack. My, my dad had a heart attack. My uncle, like that's a possibility for me. I kind of live with those possibilities all the time. And I smoke weed, so my lungs aren't great. So maybe I was like, well, but actually the idea of never being able to taste your favorite food or smell the roses is, that's a bit of a loss of your humanity. Not to say that folks that don't have that are less human, but that is an intricate part of your life when you do have that. For me, that's how you experience joy. Yeah. And I would never want to lose that. Or the sharpness that comes, like, 
from how my neurodivergent mind works. If I ever lost the ability to make all those connections rapidly, I would not be myself anymore. Although it's a curse sometimes, I still, it's me. And it would, that would be terrifying to lose a cognitive ability you've always had. Yeah, I, food is food is a pleasure that probably most people who are able to afford, you know, the food they like, they take it for granted. They take for granted that their favorite comfort food is there and they can taste it and enjoy it. So, yeah, that is a pleasure that's taken away from you by the damage that COVID can do. Another thing is, if you're my age or older, you probably remember like around 1998, when Viagra first came out, it was such a big deal. It was such a big money maker for the pharmaceutical companies when they learned that it treated erectile dysfunction and people were buying it in masses. COVID has been found, and because of the damage it does to your blood vessels, it has been found to cause erectile dysfunction in people with penises. And for people with penises, regardless of their gender, their ability to have an erection is a private pleasure for them that, again, gets taken away if COVID damages their penises. And you would think with how popular Viagra was that, you know, not wanting to lose your ability to orgasm would be enough motivation for people to wear a respirator. I don't know what effect it has on clitorises for those of us who have clitorises, but it's probably similar, right? All this talk, though, especially the people with penises talk, make me think of the warnings on cigarette packs that, you know, started just with text and <laughs> grew and grew. And they're convinced now that they if they take up three quarters of the pack with the most grotesque image that is going to trigger fear in you. Right. That isn't working. So if we can't scare people into masking or staying home, what do we do? Yeah. Because people, I mean, at least people get joy out of smoking. I don't get it. I don't like the smell. I used to smoke as a kid. You don't even get high. <laughs> so uh, I know it calms some people down, but generally it's kind of a lot of risk for very little gain, but it persists. Yeah. I know there's a physical addiction, That's a, but people start smoking even though they see this. Absolutely. So like, Something's wrong with humans in our brain, the cognitive dissonance that we do or the damage that we do to ourselves voluntarily. Self-preservation isn't always our best attribute, I suppose. But that's why I think we got to go back to governance. Although everything is great that comes from the bottom up, we do have governance for a reason. Like, is there anything you think the government could do that we could be lobbying for them to do or demanding rather? Fuck lobby. <laughs> Taking to the streets to demand what would that be? Would, would that be another 30-day lockdown or, or is that not going to cut it now? Yeah, maybe the lockdown wouldn't work so well at this point, but definitely we need to, and I, sh I should mention this on the show in case there are people listening who do need free respirators who, who can't afford them. You can go to donatemask.ca and that charity will give you free respirators if you can't afford to buy them yourselves. But that's something that the government should be doing, not a private organization. There should be an enforced mask mandate in public places. And if you don't already have a respirator mask on, one is given to you. And they did that sort of thing in Vietnam. And it worked very well. You might not get 100% compliance, 
But, you know, back when we did have mask policies, there was at least 90% compliance. There was never a mask mandate on the TTC. Really? Which, since 2020, I have not been on the TTC. And it's such a, a mind fuck because I don't drive a car. I live, you know, in a place with good public transit, like the 501 Queen Street car goes by near where my apartment building is. I would be, you know, when, when I first moved back to Toronto, I bought a Metro Pass every month and I was on the TTC subway and on streetcars and all that 20 plus times a week. I have not been on the TTC since early 2020 because they never had a mask policy. For a brief period of time in 2020, I think they had, please wear a mask if you can, but it wasn't, there wasn't zero enforcement and it wasn't even master mandatory. It was, again, suggested, recommended. I, I don't get that because you're talking about places where, like a subway, for example, where people are crammed on there, there's zero ventilation, your, your heads are beside one another. You would think that would be the one place other than hospitals, that would be the first to experience the mask mandates. We like to roll things out, not to scare people, right? So A lot of people, they have no choice but to take public transit for like their, their wage labor jobs. Yeah, not everyone can get an Uber, right? Right. Yeah, well, I, I, I work from home and in the odd time that I have to go to a completely different part of Toronto for something, I take a taxi. What do you do if your taxi driver's not masked? Oh, I now have a routine. So like one of the reasons why I use taxis like once every couple of months is I have hair appointments. And my hairstylist is in North York and I'm in South Etobicoke. You love your hairstylist, Kim. <laughs> so yeah, so that is like a, a $70, $80 taxi fare one way. That's a privilege, definitely. I mean, I could have done that for $3 on the TTC. Some taxi drivers, and I always use like a Beck taxi or traditional taxi and not Uber, because although traditional taxi drivers are exploited, as we are, we're also exploited. But all things being relative, traditional taxi drivers are less exploited than Uber drivers. So I, I take a traditional taxi, usually Beck taxi, and a year ago when I started doing this, I found that, you know, some taxi drivers now don't have any sort of mask. Some, the, the odd one that you do has a completely ineffective surgical mask and they don't even wear it. It's like dangling on like the ignition of their car or whatever. And, you know, they might put it on once you're already inside the vehicle when all that time they could be breathing COVID inside the, anyway. I hate it. I wear an elastomeric respirator, which means it's like silicon where it touches my face. It's reusable. I have learned because there was one time when I, I was so frustrated and I just like gave the taxi driver a lecture about how their surgical mask wasn't any good. And it was not any good to just put it on when I entered the car. And he broke down in tears. and He's like, ma'am, I cannot afford anything better. And I used to be poor. But I have been out of poverty for long enough that I had forgotten what it's like to not be able to afford like two, three dollar N95 respirators. So from that point on, and the only reason why I buy the disposable 3M Aura respirators is because I need to give them away to people. So now when I go take a taxi, I have a few 3Ms on me 
wrapped so you know that they're hygienic and all that. In my bag, I hand one of them to the driver and I say, I am not taking this taxi trip unless you put this on. And I make it as easy for them as possible. And I say to them, you will get a good tip if you put this on. That's a lot. That must be, it's exhausting and expensive. It's so stressful for me, yeah. What's it like always being the COVID conscious person, both in your daily life with everybody you interact with, but also consistently advocating online for something that gets a lot of flack? Yeah, it takes tremendous stubbornness. Uh, I, If I was in my 20s, I don't think I'd even have the fortitude to, to resist as much as I've been doing. Yeah, it, I wish more people around me would care about this stuff more. So then the psychological burden of always having to make calculations in my head all the time. Are they doing this? Is this going on? Are they cooperating? How do I get them to cooperate? Blah, blah, blah. Um, I am very fortunate in that my romantic partner, who does not live with me, but we've been together for five and a half years now, and he does visit my apartment on average one day a week. And he, he spends overnight here most of the time. I am, because I hear, I hear horror stories online about how COVID has separated couples. and I'm very fortunate that he cooperates with me. I pay for, you know, rats are not completely useless, but a rat will often only detect that you're infected like four or five days into your infection. I buy Q-tests and Q-tests are a significant financial investment that a lot of people can't afford. It's, uh, all this stuff is more expensive here in Canada than it is in the United States. Of course. But, um... The, the initial investment is about $700. You get a, a peripheral that's like the small white dock that charges in the wall by USB, and it connects with Bluetooth to your phone. And then your phone, you're supposed to have an app, and you also get like a, for the $700 investment, you also get like a 10-pack of tests. And it's also, you got to sign up for a $50 a month subscription on top of that. And they only give you 10 tests with your initial $50 a month subscription, but you can order new packs of three tests for about $250. Wow. I use the Q test for my partner. So he has the Q doc. I bought, again, I'm paying for all this stuff and I'm having to do all these calculations and thinking about stuff. He has the doc at home. I have the app on my phone. He has the app on his phone. The condition for him to visit me is that the Q test that he takes the day before he comes, the day that he comes over, like that morning, has to be negative. They're, they're, they have a better accuracy rate, much better, almost as good as a PCR test. Uh, yeah, all this stuff the government should be paying for. Not, not us. And the fact that, you know, probably more than half of Canadians would have real problems affording all this stuff. But poor, like I was below the poverty line for like a good 20 years of my life. If this pandemic had happened back then, I would have certainly been infected multiple times by now. No matter how much knowledge I had, 
But yeah, so he has to test negative. I buy him a good quality respirator. I bought him HEPA devices for his home. I remember to buy him replacement filters. So I order them like from Amazon. I know Amazon evil, but and I have all this stuff shipped to his home. And I he cooperates. Thank goodness he cooperates because not all partners even cooperate with all this. Still, like, this should not be my burden. It should be society's burden. It should be, like, the government paying for this stuff. Absolutely. And it reminds me of the shots of Davos that we saw, I think, last year. And I can only imagine they had these these Q tests everywhere. And they were taking every precaution imaginable, right? Because I met, as much as we hate them, they do have access to a lot of knowledge. And they have incredible privilege not so much character, but they know it's important to keep themselves safe. Yeah. Right. They while they're exploiting millions of billions of workers across the world and hoarding all of the resources that we have still those one percenters were making sure not to infect each other. Yeah. Because of the threat that it holds to them. I thought folks seeing that would be an eye opener because I think. A lot of times, COVID-conscious people were labeled as neurotic, obsessive, too much. And on top of all of the the cost and the layers of thinking that you need to do, and I really see the tie between that and, and being a an ethical hacker uh, or cybersecurity, you know, having to anticipate how other people are going to react and mitigate that before you have to worry about it. That is a heavy burden. But then on top of that being kind of labeled a bit of a pain in the ass and having to kind of go up against that over and over, you know, when you take a cab, when, you know, you're reinforcing with your partner. Yeah. You're right. Like that is a load no individual should carry. And if we had gotten leadership, actual leadership from the onset, I feel like people's mindset would be different, even with the burdens that it would have carried with it. If it weren't for capitalism then society would be doing the right thing and we wouldn't be burdened so much. Those of us who are doing everything that we can to avoid it. Capitalism has caused two major crises that we are dealing right now that will probably, if not spell the end of humanity, at least spell the end of society as we know it, which is climate change and this pandemic. We both know how capitalism has caused both of those problems. And I, you know, I'm... I'm almost 40 now. I fully expect by the time I'm in my 60s, things will totally be Mad Max, if not worse than that. It might come a lot sooner. Like, as we both know, the worst of climate change is hitting the planet a lot sooner than anticipated. Like, we've had the most extreme weather all around the world this year. There are vast areas of this planet that have been either burned or flooded. The food prices are rising to a point that it's a struggle for most Canadians to buy food. But if you think things were bad this year, as far as grocery store prices are concerned, and we know, you did a great episode on it. We know that it's like the Western Corp and all these corporate monopolies. But the other factor is we've lost so much farmland that next year, and all the years after that, food is going to be even more expensive. You, you used kind of a small scale analogy, but it should be applied to the whole broader scope of a McDonald's restaurant 
having X amount of employees sick so much so that it can't operate. We only have public health care here because capitalists understand they need a healthy workforce. The same goes for public education. These were capitulations to make sure that they had an adequate workforce, right? Roads, same thing. You know, it's, it's not to make sure individuals are okay. It's to keep capital okay. How have we not hit a point, though, that capital needs to understand that the workforce is becoming mass disabled and and they will start to mitigate this even just for their own factory sake? Because otherwise, yeah, it'll collapse. I'm (laughs) your Mad Max has me a little bit anxious. And I know some folks out there will get a little bit of (laughs) political despair when they think of this. When we when we really look at the big picture, it's it's hard. But on the bright side. Surely this has to spell the end to capitalism. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We are in end stage capitalism right now. Um, this is a discussion that we've had in COVID cautious circles. You know, it is a mass disabling event. Most people will not be able to keep on wage slaving for much longer, not after their third, fourth, fifth infection. And I think most people are on infections number three or four at this point. Um, but... There are some really great advocates in the disability community. One that I recommend is Amani Barberin. So Amani Barberin is very prominent. She has loads of followers, like hundreds of thousands of followers on Twitter, and she's big on TikTok, either like Amani Barberin or Crutches and Spice. And she has talked about this not just about COVID being a mass disabling event, but also there are, you know about companies like BlackRock and whatnot. They're like some of the most evil corporations out there. Some of these same kinds of companies are betting on exploiting us when we are too disabled to work. The institutionalization of us, whether it's in prison or it's in long-term care facilities or whatnot, making a profit off of us anyway. So even if we're not in a position where we can wage slave, if we're in a terrible long-term care home, we're being abused there, the government is still paying that corporation like 10 grand a month or whatever to exploit us there, right? So, Oh, there's no short of profiteering off misery. The maid industry is another example. So a dollar sign can be put on our heads, it seems like, whether we can labor or not. Fuck. (laughs) AI can't do everything. Robots can't do everything. There is an element of capitalism eating itself. I like one example of that is Zoom. Everyone knows what Zoom is, the, the video conferencing app, right? Zoom headquarters is uh, forcing their employees to go back to their office to work, saying that you can't use Zoom to log into working at Zoom. You have to go to the Zoom office physically. And it's like, aren't you kind of trashing your own product? I feel I feel their shares plummeting as you talk. That That's capitalism in itself, right? And also... Capitalism is not sustainable, obviously, because it concentrates all these resources to very few people. The vast majority of our labor is not going to benefit society. It's going to make some billionaire richer. So it's a tremendous waste of human potential and labor and effort. And then our planet has finite resources, and we've pretty much exhausted that. 
And, you know, our planet is starting to become uninhabitable now. There were some fortunate white people in the middle of the 20th century. My parents are a perfect example of that, who did great, because that was like an earlier stage of capitalism. uh, my, My dad was born in the 1930s, and my mom was born in the late 1940s, and they both had white privilege like especially my dad, even though they did not come from, you know, noble families or anything like that. They did, your your average working class white person, I'm saying white person because we know that those privileges did not extend to people of color, to indigenous people. It was mainly half of, you know, working class white people thrived, relatively speaking, in the mid 20th century. Can't say that now. You can't say that now. I mean, white white privilege certainly still exists, but there is almost no middle class. And they didn't even have to go to college or university and they could get a decent paying job in the auto plant because of unions, obviously. Yep. My my father is a perfect example of what you're talking about as well. Absolutely. But I can only hope that we are in the end stages of capitalism and that COVID is helping to pull that curtain back a little bit and disrupt people's just wholehearted support of capitalism that still exists for some reason in some people. As we do on this show, we'll provide as many ways to disrupt capitalism. And today, hopefully you got a few ways to disrupt COVID. And that's why it's so aggravating that all these supposed leftist institutions, like I'm not talking about the NDP. I'm talking about, you know, people who call themselves Marxists and whatnot are, I used to have a subscription to Canada Marxist Fightback magazine. I had a subscription up until this past winter when I canceled my subscription. And the reason why I canceled my subscription was none of the issues ever even mentioned COVID. So I was like, why? I'm more than happy to pay for a subscription to benefit a Marxist organization, but not if they completely ignore the issue of COVID. That, and they kept holding schools, gatherings, conferences, completely unmasked. And like, single them out isn't terribly fair. They're an example, but it's been a massive letdown. Yeah, from folks who definitely should have known better and definitely from the folks we expected this from. Thank you, Kim, for coming on and sharing you know, not only your expertise, but also a bit of your vulnerabilities and just being a great example of of what it means to be like persistently COVID conscious, not just when it was comfortable, but when it's really uncomfortable, because I feel like that's when it's most needed. So we're going to see numbers go up again. I hope it takes traction. I hope people aren't too exhausted by hearing it, you know, three years in that they've just tuned out like we've tuned out so much because we just can't afford it. We absolutely can't afford it. And I want to take myself out of lockdown at some point. So get it together, people. I've been living in lockdown, too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much, Kim. Thank you. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. 
Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.